This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Hello and welcome to Body Count, a history podcast where we gab about death and disaster through the ages, highlighting figures, single events, time periods, whatever it may be that resulted in someone, or as is usually the case, a lot of someone's dying. I am your host, Jessica Manor, joined as always by my wonderful, beautiful, and insanely talented co-host, Cara DiDemizio. That is a little taken aback by the introduction, but okay, we're here, ready to rock and roll. What can I say? I got in a, I got in a real, uh, I got in a host role, I guess sometimes it comes out and, you know, it just throws up all over you, me, and our guests, because we do in fact have a <laughs> guest today. Uh, he is back once for more. Once more, for yes. More. Yes, I am back because we, uh, uh, I overestimated how far we'd get last time. Um, I thought we'd get a lot further than we did, but that's okay. Um, just for reference for anyone who wants to keep track, uh, we got through six pages of the 36 pages of notes uh, that I have. So um, there might be a journey. few more after this, we'll see. <laughs> this way he kind of dan carlin in the sense that you know he's taking us on a journey it's the experience you're on the boat real friends we made along the way (laughs) dan carlin i would say thomas like me uh we ken burns it we go seven hours into jazz you know or like seven (laughs) hours into the civil war and you're just going when does it end but then you get so wrapped up in it you're sad at the end, you know? Yeah. And yeah, also like when, you, when you finish a book, you know, you get real sad when you finish a book. Cause you're like, oh, that's exactly you know. it. Yeah. And now it's like where we left off, we were super conflicted with this guy, like William Malone. He is this guy that comes from an interesting background. He has a lot of racist sentiments. Like let's, let's not even yeah. pretend about that one. But he also has just this interesting personality that makes him good for being an efficient leader in the military at this time. And I remember like when, when you were using some epic foreshadowing last time, I was like, why am I actually feeling sad already knowing what's going to happen? Like, I'm not even a fan of like probably the first 50% of what you told me about this guy's life. Yeah. It Mm. was a real hashtag Freddie foreshadowing moment. I mean, we had several dire or diary entries for, yeah, we're going to get a few uh, more of those. Um, Cause one of the things I found really interesting is um, Malone's kind of correspondence with his wife. Um, I found that to be very just interesting in his kind of thought process um, in the sense that he's, he potentially is kind of watering down what he is seeing with, to his wife. Um, But he's also at the same time, quite candid, um, you know, telling her kind of what he's up to and, and, and that kind of stuff. So it's an interesting mix of, um, clearly trying to not distress his wife with the fact that he's in the middle of a war zone and could be killed at any point. Um, but also trying to kind of let her know what he's up to and, and, um, and how the war's going and, and that kind of stuff. So there's going to be quite a yeah. few more of that. Yeah. And remember, dear listener, this is his second wife. I might add, he is no longer a member of the Von Trapp family. This has evolved in it to a very younger wife at this point. Yeah. 16 years younger, if I remember rightly. Um, so mm-hmm. she, um, at this time, Malone is about, he's in his mid fifties. Um, so she's going to be 40, I believe. So it's not, I mean, it's not the worst. 
Um, he didn't pull man. a Hefner. It's like not uncommon no. for the time period by any stretch of the yeah, imagination. Yeah, it's still but... it's like kind of mildly weird. Um, but I don't think yeah, it was terribly like oh he's 50 and she's like 23 or something you know it's not like well geez man like you know baby snatching or, or cradle snatching whatever they call it um so yeah so it is it is a little weird but not not as bad as it could be i guess and if i remember correctly we are going to egypt in this episode correct we are going to egypt yeah so um they they kind of stop off in egypt for a bit and we will talk a bit about um, kind of what they get up to there um, in terms of like the training and that kind of stuff. Because um, they spend, they do spend, I think, a few months there before they end up in um, Gallipoli. But it is also important to remember that they didn't realize that they were going to end up in Gallipoli, which again, we'll talk a little bit later about that. Um, but they initially thought that they were going to the Western Front in France. Um, that's where they thought they were going to end up. Um, but that obviously isn't kind of the way that it went. Excellent. Uh, so, so let's we can, jump right in. We can crack into it. Um, so I guess I feel like we need we do need to kind of say if you haven't listened to the first episode, that's really important. Um, it sets up a lot of like who this guy is and um, kind of how he how he feels and how his kind of demeanor and that kind of stuff. Um, like one of the things I think re- hopefully listeners took out of the, the first episode was how batshit insane in terms of a training and and kind of his uh, discipline and kind of mentality around that kind of stuff. He's very um, you know, he don't take no shit kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> so I think that, that that's really important to set up the kind of character that he is. Uh, the, the first episode probably isn't so much about, like, it's not super important, I guess, in terms of, like, why Gallipoli happened or anything like that. But it's important for this guy. It, it, it really sets a foundation of kind of why he's going to do a lot of the stuff that he actually does do. Um so yeah, so they all, um, I believe when we left off last time, um, he gets on a boat on the 15th of October um, and they all start heading towards, um, well, Egypt is the final destination, um, but they initially head to Australia because they're going to pick up some more people on the way there. Um, so as they're heading to Australia on on this kind of small convoy, um, Malone starts imposing order and continues to train his men like he already has been when he was in New Zealand. And he actually chastises his direct subordinate, um, who was a guy by the name of Hellfire Mac, um, which is like, he's not super relevant. I just thought the name was really good. Um, but he, he chastises him for, for playing a suggestive song um, or for the band playing a suggestive song that evening. Oh, um, he's that guy. He's that yeah. guy. You know, he, it mentions stuff you know, like, it, it's not even that bad. I did, um, I did read a little bit about it. And the gist of it is, is, the, the the song was like a little bit like flirty, you know, it was, it wasn't really like, it wasn't terribly explicit. Propane. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't that bad. Um, but you know, he's a, he's a very good Catholic man. So he's not into that. Um, you know, sex purely for um, procreation. Procreation. Kind of guy, you know? <laughs> he already <laughs> a has good a Catholic through and through. Yeah, exactly. Um, and he can also continue to give lectures to his officers on strategy, military law, uh, regulations, efficiency, and tactics. And he drew a lot of the um, stuff that he learned from the studies that he did on, you know, the American Civil War, the Boer War, and particularly the Russo-Japanese War that had happened about 10 years earlier. So 1904, 1905. So again, if you remember from that first episode, he was, um, 
he was doing a lot of research on um, the kind of wars and, and kind of major generals of the last kind of 100 years or so. Um, and he also professed the importance of physical fitness and loyalty to superiors, which is a bit weird given his later attitude to superiors. Um, so kind of later on, we'll see once we get to Gallipoli, is that Malone quite frequently butts heads with his um, direct superiors, um, criticizing them for their strategies and that kind of stuff. Um, and I guess it, you could say he was still loyal to them, but he did also frequently disregard their orders. So, you know, there's that. Um, so, yeah, and he also said officers should be self-critical, kind of asking, have I done my duty? And above all, should be a good example to their men uh, and always be concerned with their health, comfort and care. So although he, you know, was really cracking the whip on them, um, he did genuinely think you should be concerned for your men um you know overall even if they were uncomfortable because you would were constantly training them and marching them you know you shouldn't be like you know working them into the ground to the point where it's actually like detrimental to their health which is again, in a way kind of, i'm kind of a fan though they should be prepared he wants to make sure everybody leaves this there is many leave it alive as possible well, I mean, still just being kind of a hard ass, you know, like a Debbie Downer, if you will. Um, but that is, again, and we kind of talked about it at the end of, that's the guy I want leading me into war, yep. not the guy that's my buddy or like telling me, yeah. oh, yeah, whatever, whatever you feel. No. Everything's yeah. fine. And then you have a shell fly past your face. Or yeah. And then, yeah. and then shit gets real. And oh, my God, what have we been doing? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so it, it, the other thing to kind of note as well is that his, uh, his, I guess, when you look at like a spectrum of, you know, like health, comfort and care, you know, his is definitely on like the extreme end of, yeah, I'm going to work your ass to, into the ground. Um, but, you know, I'm not going to like, you know, you're not going to be that bad. Whereas like, I think a lot of people would probably put themselves a bit further down the scale of like, no, nah, I just want to like chill out and like, you know, that's, you know, that's what I call comfort and care. You know, his was, I guess, a, a, a slightly, he viewed that slightly differently, you know, than I guess what a lot of people would. Um, and the other thing, of course, that he did was wrote, he wrote to um, his wife, Ida, a lot as well, saying he was, quote unquote, quite proud um, and that he thought of her often as he carried a picture of a picture of her um, around, which he did um, quite often. He, he often actually got pictures of her as well. And she actually um, did the same, having moved out of the main room in their house to the spare room with Malone's picture in her prayer book. Um, so they were, you know, even though they were currently still a lot of distance between them um, and it was only going to get bigger, um, you know, they were still quite quite into each other. Um, and as I said, they, they do frequently correspond um, as well. So after... Five days on the 21st of October, um, Tasmania came into view, um, though none of the men would be getting shore leave, um, which garnered Godly a lot of abuse. Um, so if you remember, Godly is one of those guys that's going to come up quite a lot. Um, so he is, uh, for anyone who needs a reminder, um, he's the commandant of the New Zealand Armed Forces. Um, so when it comes, to, he's the top New Zealand general um, at the moment. Um, and as we, again, we mentioned last time, we're going to shit on him a lot. Um, and he was not, he was not well liked by the New Zealand forces. Um, and this was kind of the first instance of that. Um, so this day was brief, but Malone seems to have enjoyed it. 
uh, though less so when he was back on the ship heading for mainland Australia, uh, where he clashed with his officers who seemed to disagree with his every order. Um, two in particular, uh, Brunt and Saunders, were singled out by Malone in his diary, where he said, quote, I am convinced that an officer must be a gentleman bred. The lack of education is a great misfortune. Brunt, I think, is a boar with Negro blood. Saunders is too small in the head. Neither of them are gentlemen, end quote. So I should say there is a quote. I don't profess these uh, <laughs> these uh, these views. Um, but yeah, no, he, you know, it's again, kind of his, his racist kind of tendencies coming up again. Mm-hmm. Um, it's ironic he's talking about their ignorance, right? And mm. to a degree being quite ignorant himself and this being an observation that he clearly thought if he put in his diary. Yeah, he was clearly not kind of ashamed of this. Um, you, you know, like the, I, I assume he, he intended for his diary to be read by someone at some point. Because um, generally with these sorts of things, um, you know, if, if you didn't want people to know it, you just didn't write it down. Um, which, again, is something that we're going to see a, a bit further on. Um, so, you know, it, it's it's interesting. It kind of shows kind of his, uh, you know, what he is willing people to know about him and that kind of stuff. But, of course, that kind of thing was not necessarily unusual or anything like that at the time so he probably wasn't oh well he clearly was not that ashamed of it um but kind of in saying that he was gradually more pleased with his officers and their discipline uh, malone himself admitting that maybe he was a bit too harsh because he does have very high standards so you know um he's pretty he's pretty harsh on his men but at least he recognizes it um although i see kara's making a face it's just like <laughs> Why? It's the fact that he like acknowledges it. You know what I mean? If if that makes yeah. sense, he comes one eighty. Like he's self aware about it. Yeah, I think I it, I personally think he justifies it, or he did justify it to himself. Like it's uh, this is a life or death situation. You know, if uh, I, I think he he was like, yeah, you know, if if I train the if I'm really harsh on these guys and and bring them up to or try to bring them up to my standard. You know, this may very well be the difference between whether they get to come home or not, um, which for a, a lot of them probably was. And to be fair, he had a little more foresight, I think, and we discussed this in the last episode, than uh, what most men of his particular rank, most of the men around mm. him necessarily thought this was going to be an in and out over quickly, whereas he yep. always kind of took the view of, this is going to be rough. This is going to be bloody and it will yep. come to a life or death situation. I mean, just based on his position and where he's going, what he's doing alone. So um, I think again, this is, this is a guy of uh, you just, you feel conflicted about him all the way up from mm. the beginning to the end. And um, so I, I just think it's interesting and I'm interested to see how I'm going to feel by the time we finish this episode. Mm. how much more I'm I'm going to be into him or maybe I hate him now I don't know it's it's started out it's been a roller coaster so yeah it's it's only going to continue uh, is all I can say <laughs> like you know I I you know I've done all the research or not well not all the re- but you know I've done quite a bit of research and so I know the whole whole story and it yeah it is, I'm still I still feel like I'm quite on the fence about who he is and and I think that is in, in a way, that kind of is, you know, that's kind of the same for most people throughout history. No one is, you know, they're, they're, you hear it a lot 
you know, it's all grey, there's never black and white, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I think I think Malone really kind of epitomises that. Um, you know, he undoubtedly saved a lot of lives, um, but at the same time, kind of a horrible person in a lot of ways. <laughs> so Yeah, but also there's the reverse, and then I also like that he took the correct lessons from the readings on the Russo-Japanese war, again, to the mm. point. He knew what he was getting into. I mean... I can't imagine other many other men his age were reading about that. Like, I just no. can't imagine that at all. Yeah. So I think we mentioned last episode that to for an officer to read, you know, to actually study and look at historical kind of battles and literature and that kind of stuff was extremely unusual. So, yeah, like the only thing that they really did, I think um, the British Army, I think, put out... Um, like various like kind of guides and, and and that kind of stuff you were kind of expected to read that um but you yeah like to kind of go that extra mile of you know oh i'm going to read about like wellington's campaigns against napoleon and, and try and tease out something from that that was pretty unusual um so he was already kind of five steps ahead of a lot of his um a lot of the people that were not just the same rank but also you know higher up than him as well um so and yeah, so he's kind of yeah a, a bit of a bit of a weirdo, I guess, in that regard already. Um, so yeah, so back to the boats. Um, as they were going through what's known as the Australian Bight, which is kind of in the southern southern bit of Australia, um, they hit quite rough weather, and um, which caused all the portholes um to be closed. And this actually uh, seems to have contributed to the first death of a soldier on active duty in the New Zealand Expeditionary Force. Um, which was Lance Corporal John Gilher- Gilchrist, Gilchrist? I'm not sure how to pronounce that name, sorry. Sorry if anyone's related to him. Um, so, yeah, so that is um, that was uh, potentially, or that that was the first death um, of an active duty soldier. Um, uh, and, well, I think pretty much, yeah, in World War One. yeah. And so on the 29th of October, they picked up uh, the Australian convoy. So this was the... Um, I don't know if it was called the Australian Expeditionary Force, but that that's effectively what it was. Um, and they headed into the Indian Ocean with two divisions of 30,000 men and 10,000 horses. Um, so this is, this is something that I'm not really going to cover, um, but there are a lot of animals involved in Gallipoli as well, um, particularly a few, um, a few mules that are quite famous. Um, but yeah... It, yeah, again, it's not something I'm really going to cover because we had to cut some content somewhere. <laughs> now you have back. us like waiting for that animal content. Yeah, oh, damn sorry it. guys, we're not going to cover that, but um, <laughs> but something to kind of keep in the back of your mind when when we're talking a lot about this kind of stuff is there are a shitload of animals that are, you know, as much as we talk about like human deaths and that kind of stuff, there's a lot of animals that are involved with this as well. Horses being kind of the primary one, but um, pack animals like like mules and donkeys. Um, are quite a quite a big part of this as well. Um, and so despite the heat below deck becoming basically unbearable, because um, I don't know if anyone knows about Australia and in the Indian Ocean, but it's fucking hot out there, um, Malone seems to have been more concerned with the fact that the Aussie ships didn't douse their lamps at night, putting the whole convoy at risk, and noting that oh, the Kiwis wow. were very diligent about this. So yeah, so of course, dousing your lamps um, basically yeah. so no one can can see you, um, or it's harder to see you and that kind of stuff. Because um, again, if you remember back from the the earlier episode, um, they didn't get off quite as quickly as they thought they would because 
um, a German squadron was uh, seen in the area and they were a bit concerned that they were going to get attacked. Um, and then this is kind of where things get a little bit kind of interesting. Um, because along the way, when, while they're still traveling through the Indian Ocean, a Boer rebellion breaks out in South Africa. Um, so, of course, we remember that the Boer War has kind of kind of just happened, like not that long ago. Um, and so something has happened over there to cause another rebellion to kind of spark up. And the convoy was quite promptly ordered to head for South Africa, where it would be to put at the disposal of the local government. So very, very nearly did they go and end up in South Africa in South Africa instead. Um, but within a couple of days, uh, the Ottoman Empire had entered the war on the side of the Central Powers. So at this point, they hadn't done so. Um, and then suddenly, bam, they're in. Um, and this, of course, threatened the Suez Canal in Egypt. So that was obviously a big thing. Hello, Kara, you would like to say something? Yes, I would like to say something. Can I just say the way you presented it made it sound like the Ottoman Empire just entered a group chat? Like, Ottoman, yeah, Ottoman Empire has entered, entered the chat. Um, I mean, that's kind of what it was. I mean, in a way. In a way. Of, <laughs> um, if you need like an analogy, Ottoman Empire has just entered the chat. Um, although I, I assume they were probably already in the chat for some time. They just. Uh, they were know, lurking, but they just officially yeah. announced themselves. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so this was obviously an extremely important uh, point in the war um as i said this threatened the Suez canal which is um even today a major part yeah. of shipping and trade and supply lines and all that kind of stuff oh, of course at this yeah point, it in the was 20th British century control. there'd be a lot yep. more conflict to happen yep. around that particular canal trust me our viewers have heard me scream about it multiple times i'm glad <laughs> they know the suez canal then if anything that's more than the average bloke might know so oh they so, know. so yeah so the suez canal obviously very very important so suddenly the priorities change and all that kind of stuff and then the convoy was once again diverted to egypt um where the kiwis and aussies would defend the canal while they trained in preparation for deployment on the western front um, which I think actually does remind me, I should uh, retcon what I did say earlier was they weren't actually going to be headed to Egypt. I believe they were originally headed for England. Um, they only headed to Egypt because suddenly the Ottoman Empire entered the war and that was a whole, uh, you know, a whole game thing. changer. Yeah, that was a big game changer. Geopolitical problem. Yeah, because if the Suez Canal fell, um, obviously, or if that became, if it came under Ottoman control, um, that was that was a huge problem. Um, yeah, and I mean, people refer to the ottoman empire as the sick man of europe at this point but it's not quite a fair analogy completely because even though it was on the decline and had been for quite some time in comparison to where it had been i mean they still exerted a decent sizable force and wasn't to be underestimated foreshadowing as we will come to find out exactly i mean foreshadowing but uh, the kiwis or the the the, the whole group as a whole is going to get their fucking ass whooped um this is spoiler not, alert spoiler i mean for something that happened over 100 years ago but you know it, it's it's um it's true, yeah the, i mean it, it, it's not just because of the ottoman empire there was a lot of other things that happened as well that contributed to that but yeah the ottoman empire is is it, it's not down and out quite yet um 
and of course, you know, if they take the Suez Canal, that's, you know, no matter how kind of on the decline the Ottoman Empire is, if they take the Suez Canal, that is a major hit to the Allied effort. Um, there's no doubt about that. So, um, so yeah, so like, yeah, it's not quite true that the Ottoman Empire is, um, yeah, the, the sick man of Europe, is, as you put it. Um, it's, it's still got a bit of fight left in it yet, and there are people within the empire that still um, are very, very competent, as we will see. Um, so it's not, they're not quite just out of the game yet. Um, and the other thing that kind of happened around this time was that they narrowly avoided a German, German raiding ship by about two hours, um, which is really, really close by nautical standards and that kind of stuff. And Godley commented that had they met the ship at night, it would have sunk half a dozen troop ships as the naval escorts wouldn't be able to hit it without f incurring friendly fire. So they were pretty damn lucky. Weirdly enough, though, Malone, crazy bastard, uh, regretted that they hadn't met the ship. Um, in fact, he <laughs> had like... hoped that they would. Don't know why. Because, uh, because of course, his men wouldn't be able to do anything. They're not, they're, they're army guys, right? They're, the yeah, thing they're is, not Navy. They're not Navy guys. So, you know, don't know why. It's such a bizarre thing, though, for him to want to do, because it's like, yeah. given what we know of his, like, prowess and training and stuff. Mm. Well, right. to be fair, he's been preparing for this war since long before rumble it's true. got serious he's like one of those you know, people that's in hobby. a bunker it's like a prepper right like he's been mm. ready for this for, for ages but, but the weird some thing people being... paint some people paint warhammer figurines this guy's been imagining <laughs> fighting the germans this entire time when he had a seven so bedroom house to or his own. like that yeah, mm. he's been sleeping the, on a cot. The weird thing being, though, that all the study that he's done and all this training he's done isn't going to mean jack shit if you're stuck on a boat trying to fight <laughs> yeah. another ship. Like, he's like, yeah, stuff about trenches and organization. It doesn't matter. You're on a, a floating tin can that if it gets a hole, you're done, right? Like, totally different. It's like you, Duncan. Yeah. Like, no. So I don't, no. yeah. So I, I found that really strange because <laughs> it's like none of what you have studied is going to count for anything. So it's almost like he got so obsessed with the short term instead of the big picture in that moment, which is interesting. Yeah. So I, I think this is probably one of the few times that Malone was pretty wrong. Um, and, and Godley was, <laughs> he just had a hard on for war and wanted, and wanted to fight. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but thankfully, well, thankfully for them, um, they later found this shipped, uh, this ship beached after it had been attacked and defeated uh, by one of the convoy escorts. Um, so thankfully the, the danger was um, eliminated. Uh, and kind of um, adding to Malone's craziness was that he refused to postpone an inspection parade due to the 34 degrees Celsius heat, which is 93 Fahrenheit. Ooh, so that's right. really hot, really quite hot yeah. if you're in that's uh, full yeah, even if, um, or especially if you're in full dress, which is what he wanted. He he wanted his men properly uniformed at all times until a doctor advised him that it was a bad idea. Because um, you probably don't want to be parading around in, in full, quite heavy dress. Again, these guys kind of thought that they were going to the Western Front, where it was going to be quite cold. So they were kind of prepared for that. Um, you know, when it's 34 degrees and you stand on the deck of a ship, 
not super good. Um, to counter this to the doctor, he said, quote, I told them to eat less. That three full meat meals a day in the tropics was absurd, end quote. Um, which is, I don't really know how that's relevant, but... <laughs> it just sounds like he's still obsessed with their, like, habits with the bathroom, is what it sounds like to me. Maybe he's a reincarnation of Carl the Twelfth. He's really into hunting, and he loves himself a good military parade, all right? Like, he seems to be in that, you know? Not the fanfare, but he loves to watch the troops jump. Um, yeah. That's or interesting. Shit. Or shit. Or where they yeah. shit. How they shit. shit. <laughs> <laughs> Very but That's yeah. important, um, actually, in this yeah. context. Content. It is important, but again, there's not much you can do about it when they're on the ship because that's a whole different ball game. Um, and so the rest of the trip to Egypt was filled with training, um, the customary crossing of the line ceremony, um, which I don't know how much you guys know about that. Question mark. There's a thing um, that it's still practiced in the navies uh, pretty much across the world today, which is when you cross the equator. Um, I don't know too much about it, but basically it involves um, people... Uh, dressing up as Neptune and you play weird games and fuck? yeah, it's like a whole thing. Uh, this is yeah, it's a whole is... thing. It's it's a modern practice. So, as I said, it's still practiced today. Um, it's a modern practice of cosplaying Neptune. Yes, and they, it's like a it's like a weird <laughs> navy hazing is effectively what it is. The opportunities I miss going to the Caribbean, can I just say? All the times I could have dressed as Neptune on ships. I mean, I feel really cheated by not knowing this custom. And I yeah, feel so, really blown. Yeah, it's really, well, when I say modern, it is, it is an old ceremony. Um, but it's, uh, it's one that's still practiced to, uh, today. Um, and it's usually uh, the ones that get kind of hazed are the ones that um, haven't done it before. So it's usually the officers doing it to the um, to the rank and file guys um, who haven't crossed the equator before. Um, so, you know, this why is that necessary? Uh, I mean, it's not. Uh, it's just like it's fun. Have you seen a young man in a shell bikini wearing a very bright red <laughs> lipstick? I know uh, it would change my mind about some things. Just saying. Including the Navy? <laughs> Including the Navy, first Especially and foremost. Especially the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there was that. Um, there was also a riot. Um, and his own, uh, Malone's own health and waistline uh, were getting better, um, which he was quite pleased with. Um, and he attempted to do some censorship of the onboard entertainment, um, among some other random oh, stuff. Uh, he's he's that guy not only the flirty music yeah. like with the little nuance he has to yeah. make sure they're not reading porn basically he thinks yeah. bob hope is too raunchy and now he's just ruined it for everyone god yeah i believe um specifically it was poetry if i remember rightly was what he Ugh. had a problem with. yeah um wait so was he's... it erotic poetry to... no I, it... again i don't believe it was that bad it was just a bit like you, you know it was just a bit... yeah you know, like, tea. <laughs> yeah, just a bit, you know, but but tan you know, but tantalizing a little bit, you know, mm, just a little taster for, you know, you've got like you've got like a hundred guys on a boat, you know, you wanna you wanna talk about the cars of a woman or whatever, you know, like you know, it's just you know, bug stuff. Bug stuff. Yeah. Yeah. All right. God. So, I'm sure that made him popular. 
What I'm we've sure learned most is he is no Navy man of anything no. and everything. He is best suited to land, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so there was a bunch of stuff um, that was really interesting. But, again, we have to cut some stuff. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> you're right there, Jessica. Do you you want to you wanna swallow that? Or? I got it. Why are you <clears throat> swallowing anything? We're in the Navy, Kara. We're in the Navy. <laughs> We're at sea. Just stuff. We're Blog seamen. Stuff. <laughs> We're surrounded by seamen. <laughs> oh, I was waiting for a seamen joke. It's uh, so, all right. We'll be back on land, ranging in the bush again. We're, gonna, we're about, yeah, we're about to hit land again. <laughs> Any before. bush rangers out and about? Bush Many. rangers, yeah. So, when they near, were nearing Alexandria um, in the first couple of days of December, um, again, this is 1914. Yeah, 1914. Uh, Godly wrote to the troops to warn them about being too friendly with the locals. Um, so, again, we're about to get into a bit of racism. Uh, quote The natives of Egypt have nothing in common with the Maldives, or Maoris, I guess he probably would have called them. Uh, they belong to races lower on the human scale and cannot be treated <gasps> the same manner. The slightest familiarity with them will breed contempt, which is certain to have far-reaching consequences. End quote. Ooh. Yeah. So, it's like so he's being, he was already racist against the Maori, so he's basically yeah. saying they're even worse. Yeah. So this is the kind of theme oh, that Jesus. kind of, uh, I guess, comes through during their time in Egypt, is that they see the local Egyptian population to be kind of, be not just beneath the white guys, but to be beneath Maori as well um, and I'm not sure if this was because they genuine believe, genuinely kind of had this kind of racial superiority thing going on which of course they did but so that's probably part of it but as we'll kind of see it's potentially got a practical purpose in that um, Egypt at the time kind of had a big like syphilis and other STD kind of was quite prevalent at the time mm. Um, so they were potentially trying to avoid that by playing on their kind of xenophobia quite a bit as well. Um, not saying that, that, you know, using xenophobia for that purpose is right, um, but that may have been what they were trying to avoid. Um, but yeah, pretty pretty horrific stuff in general. Um, Given the like, yeah. Western view, especially, no, that makes sense. I mean, not forgivable, but... And yeah, that's what was going approach. on the Western Front, man. Like they had no yeah. problem, like no problem frolicking in France, you know. Like yeah, I mean this so didn't really stop them, uh, from what I understand. Um, yeah, you know, I mean you've been on a boat again. You've got, you've been surrounded by a hundred seamen. Um, you know, you, you're gonna wanna, you're gonna wanna route. Um, when you get back to land, so I don't believe it was terribly effective. Um, plus so he learned a thing or two. To watching his deer, as we'll remember from the first episode, Kara. I remember yes. his rock peeping <laughs> when he was breeding <laughs> his deer. That's right. That's what I, his yeah. voyeurism. Yeah. Is not uh, proven, yeah. but he did, in fact, breed deer. Yes, he did breed deer for a while and released them out into the um, into the New Zealand bush as well, um, mm -hmm. which we are still he trying to deal with bush. today. Um, so, yeah, whether Malone agreed with these kind of sentiments or not, um, is a bit unclear, um, but he did feel that Alexandria was dirty, smelly, and that the few women he got to see unveiled were, uh, quote, the reverse of attractive or beautiful, 
end quote. Um, so he wasn't he that wasn't insulting. really into it. So even though I do say he it is unclear um, whether he felt the same way, it's it's probably a safe bet that he probably leaned towards the similar views of Godly as well. Um, mm. And due to these problems, as well as the ease of access to drink um, after seven weeks of sobriety, uh, it was deemed that there would be no shore leave. Um, so they weren't allowed to come off the ships and um, just hang about and well, realistically go to brothels and get pissed, basically. Um, get drunk and go whoring. Yeah, yeah. yeah basically. Um, the result of this was at about 6 p.m. one evening, 130 men from the Wellington Battalion rushed down the ramps and got past the guards headed for the city. A couple of units were sent to round them up, and by 10 p.m. they had been caught and handed over for punishment. Um, interestingly enough, Malone makes no mention of this incident in his diary. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, as I mentioned earlier, um, if you didn't want people to know something about, you know, if you were expecting people to read your diary, you just didn't put it in there. Um, so, yeah, so he just doesn't put it in there presumably because you know okay with the overt racism it's always the lack of discipline with this guy boy yeah his father really got in there with the discipline thing didn't he yeah absolutely so thankfully for all the men in in the convoy um they were granted shore leave on the 3rd of december and they went absolutely buck wild um really having just like a great time um quote in oh one evening, they had seen Aladdin's cave, the 40 thieves, and the Horus, Horus, not quite sure how to pronounce that, uh, of the thousand and one knights, uh, veiled women and others whose draperies were of the most definite sorts. Game, don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, French, Greek, Russians, and Italians, with the brown-skinned Egyptians and the black Nubians from the south, all these they had seen, and they spell of Egypt and the spell of Egypt had taken hold of them. They were lured by the sensuous, riotous beauty of the land. End what quote. Orientalism right there. That's yeah. Orientalism. Yeah. Like, so that... it really, yeah, really feels that kind of, um, yeah, that kind of British, like, you know, that, like Oriental. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. It's, that, that it's weird something that's never gone away, that, really. I mean, to the extent no. that there's still that underlying exoticism if you will um like yeah. when you look at treatment of iran or persia um when you look at treatment of some of the middle eastern countries i would argue this has been a long-standing tradition since ancient times look at how yeah. the west viewed egypt and particularly rome look how they yeah. viewed alexandria and all of these cities so no that's interesting to me that some things never change and how- we can take it all the way back to the old Greeks. Yeah, no, it is. You're right. That is, yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, Orientalism a, 101. Yeah, it really brings yeah. that kind of, um, that view of, you know, like belly dancers and like, you know, like um, shisha and, and, and that kind of stuff, you know, like that's that's the vibe it kind of brings into your mind kind of thing, which is. Um, Why do they have the compulsive need of like stereotyping entire cultures? Like yeah, that? it's really strange. Um, somewhere in the future, T. Lawrence is rolling his eyes at everybody, going, Ugh. Yeah, yeah, jeez, exactly. I've got shit to do. You people are ridiculous, yeah. <laughs> uh, that, um, so that passage was written by an infantryman who was obviously um, involved, um, with, with uh, many a with woman, the, many a woman, I'm guessing, yeah. Um, 
so the next morning, the Kiwis and Aussies boarded trains and went to Cairo, um, with their camp being about 10 kilometers um, outside of that. That's not one that I've converted, unfortunately, but it's uh, a mile is 1.6, I think, Ks. So it's about 15 miles, I think-ish, um, from Cairo. Um, and the trip, the trip took them through the Nile Delta, um, which is kind of an interesting kind of thing uh, in the sense that obviously the Nile Delta has a really storied history of foreign armies marching through it. Um, you know, we've just been mentioning like the Greeks, so Alexander, Alexander the Great, uh, the Roman legions, the Arabians, Napoleon, Britain, and even actually the Ottomans themselves at one point as well. Um, and so this, the, the kind of obviously difference of this was that this was a very different kind of war. Um, and these were a very different kind of people from the opposite side of the globe. Um, so I don't know. I thought that was kind of an, an interesting kind of kind of thing. It as is, well. especially like just having mentioned that's the just an infantryman, like their their common approach to how they see it as far as oriental. I can't speak now. Orientalism, um, but then also what that might look like through their particular point of view or being in this place what's lost what they notice what they kind of remark on so that is that's interesting yeah um so they get to their camp um just outside of, of cairo and uh when they get there malone is absolutely merciless um working his soldiers longer <sighs> and harder than those of any other new zealand infantry battalion he is just insane he is parading them in full gear in 31 degrees Celsius heat, which is about 88 Fahrenheit, um, which he thought was an act of toughness. Like, that's, that's just an act of stupidity, bonkers. frankly. Yeah. That's a literal, no, 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 no. He could have had people just passing out. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's, that's like a, you know, if people were doing that today, you'd be like, you, you know, you'd have to throw the book at the guy. <laughs> you know, like... That's just, it's insane. And he said his men weathered it bravely to the point where not only were they not any worse off, but in fact, they were mentally better for it. I don't know how much I agree with that, um, but people who actually do know stuff at the time, again, doctors, advised him that this was a bad idea. So, you know, and I mean, I'm, I, 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 I would agree oh. with that. <laughs> Although I would have been the one to pass out there and avoid Gallipoli, so there's that. Yeah, exactly. Can you imagine that guy later on at an officer's tent when everybody's like talking about how they've still got to lay everything out that first night? How excited he is about latrine digging, just taking that upon himself, making sure that he's you know planning for the camp shits. Yeah, must have Boy been, Scout. Yes. Yeah, he everyone's like, oh, so we're gonna excited. we're gonna position like the tents here. We're gonna put up some defenses here, you know. And we're gonna, um, you know, this. And we're gonna do all the officers here. And he's going like, where's everyone gonna shit? Sorry, sorry, uh, William, you want to run that by me one more time? Where are they gonna shit? <laughs> <You know, like, laughs> well, yeah. we'll let you be in charge of that, buddy. Yeah. It's like, good. Yes. It's good. Yeah, like, you know, he's that kid in the group, like, that gets, like, the fun, he's, like, he thinks he's just, like, won this, like, really great, like, victory, like, yes, I get to do the latrines! (laughs) Somebody's talking about supply lines, and he's, like, piss on you, buddy, I've got this, you know? (laughs) 
he's like, like come, come and look at aren't these great latrines? I, I mean, yeah, man. Like, <laughs> all right, I guess. Look how, just look, mm, look how, you know, just how perfectly shaped they are, and I know, and they dug them in full dress. Oh, <laughs> it's thirty degrees out here. God, what an awful place to take a shit, though. Oh, oh. Jesus, the smell. Oh, oh, can you imagine the sweat? That's the worst part. I can't. That's yes. I, it's all coming to me in full dress, digging yeah. latrines. Yeah. Oh. Well, we have to experience it as we talk about it. Oh, yeah. No, it's um, <sighs> it is rough, and it's only going to get worse as well. Um, so by this point, uh, Malone had command of about one thousand three hundred and fifty men, um, with the addition of the Salon Planter Rifles. Um, which were a group of Europeans, um, and, like rubber planters from modern-day Sri Lanka. Um, so although they're called the Salon Planter Rifles, these were not, um, I, I guess, what you'd call them, like native Sri Lankans. Um, they were they were Europeans who had colonized the area. Mm. Um, no. And, yeah, naturally... Um, just in case anyone thinks that we're about to get a bit more wholesome and multi-ethnic, no, 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 that's not what no, we're no. doing. <laughs> <laughs> um, just yeah, when you think Malone's like going to turn a new leaf, no, he's, that's not happening. Only gentlemen get to die in this war, ladies and exactly. gentlemen. Exactly, um, because again, if you remember from last time, um, you know, Maldi had to really fight to even be able to yeah. actually do anything um, that involved active combat, um, or just to get a, a contingent of their own men. So, you know, it's, it, it's still, you know, there's still a lot of that going on. Um, so having been told that they would likely see action against the Turks within a month, uh, Malone set about ensuring the camp was in tip-top shape, uh, making sure, quote, every tent pole and peg stood in perfect symmetry, end quote. Um, so, you know, he's, he's doing his latrine thing. He's making sure all the tents are, you know, exactly 10 centimetres from each other or whatever. And... You know, so he's just making sure it all looks real good. Um, and he looked over the area or over the surrounding area with quite a tactful eye, um, again, noting how much he disliked the villages of the Arab and Egyptian populations. Um, so he's, again, really just not into the the local population in any way, shape or form. Um, and although the area was steep, um kind of steeped in ancient Egyptian history, um, they were actually camping right on top of a city dedicated to Ra, um, you know, the ancient Egyptian god of the sun, um, as well as apparently various Christian holy sites um, as well. There was actually quite a few of them in the area because, um, of course, Christianity was obviously um, quite big in, in Egypt for a very, very long time and still even was as well um, when they were there. Yeah, Coptic Christianity is still a thing yeah, in many parts. Exactly. Um, so one of the kind of ones that kind of got Malone into a little bit of trouble um, was there was a large white rock nearby that seemingly had no provenance. They it, no, it didn't. They didn't really know what it was for or who it belonged to or anything like that. So Malone had it broken up to use as tent boundaries and edging for the roads and pathways in the camp. Um, but not long after this, a man, quote, looking like the Sheik of Araby, 
uh, end quote, arrived and was able to produce documents that showed he owned the stone, which had now been destroyed. Um, so Malone was summoned to explain his, quote, unauthorized destruction of certain private property, end quote. Mm. Uh, but the matter was put to rest by paying the man a considerable amount of money. Bribery. Um, yeah. Um, so like a lot of things that we're going to encounter, this is not really relevant to anything. I just thought it was interesting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of, um, and as we'll see in a bit as well, um, Malone does go to these churches and things quite a bit, um, as well as his men um, go to a lot of these um, interesting historical sites as well. Um, Actually, so war tourism is a thing, honestly. Um, yeah. This would happen during the Second World War and the lead up to it as well. Yeah. So there's a lot of, um, yeah, like, yeah, as you say, war tourism, you know, a bunch of guys are like, oh, you know, We'll head down to, you know, the local, like, um, you know, like local church. And, you know, it's like a thousand years old or something. You know, that's pretty cool. You know, or we might when go see. When are they like, going to see it again? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, we might go see, like, some of the Greek stuff. You know, might, there might be some statues hanging around. That's pretty cool. You know, like, yeah. So they were going around, like, having a look at this kind of stuff. Um, but, of course, the, the the training was now really starting to ramp up um, across the board, not just in Malone's kind of little space that he was in. Um, drills with the company platoons and battali battalion, uh, musketry, attacking and defending, digging trenches, um, and 50 kilometers, uh, 50 kilometer marches in 40 degree C heat. So that's 31 miles in 104 Fahrenheit. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm God, kidding. no. If anyone's wondering why I'm laughing, uh, Jessica just made this great face of, like, absolute disgust uh, when I said <laughs> that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, really, really Ugh. rough. Um, yeah, they're, like, just so far, it's so hot. And, and, and again, Malone, more than likely, uh, oh, no, actually, I do have a note here. Each man was carrying an overcoat, blanket, waterproof sheet, water bottle, rations, rifle, bayonet, and 150 rounds of ammo, tol totaling about 30 kgs, which is 66 pounds. So 50 k's, 40, 40 degree heat, 30 kgs worth of stuff. Meanwhile, he's basically skipping on ahead like he's got Marseille shore leave. I'm sure this is just like his freaking holiday. Yeah. So this is this is the thing about Malone is although he was harsh, he never ordered his men to do something he wouldn't do. So he would usually march at the head of his men rather than riding his horse. His horse had also, by the way, he had brought all the way from New Zealand as well. Uh, there is a yeah. bit of a story there, but uh, again, we had to cut some content somewhere. Um, what? Yeah, yeah. I just look. We can't do this. We can't do the story of the animals, Kara. We we have more than enough on the people alone. <laughs> we re yeah, we have more than enough on the people. Yeah. I just feel like this has to be an ad addendum. What happened to the story of his horse situation? Yeah, I don't actually know what ended up happening to his horse. I didn't look into it. Um. So yeah, sorry, I can't give a satisfying conclusion to that one. Um. But yeah, no, he was marching at the head of his men, um, with them carrying the same gear, doing all of that. Um. He was actually even worse to his junior officers, uh, making them do an extra hour of parading and drilling each morning on top of the rest of the battalion's normal training. I would um, be like, I quit. I'll be a regular dude now. <laughs> yeah. Um, eventually what happened is they refused to turn up 
and Malone told them that this was basically mutiny and threatened to court-martial them. Um, oh, for fuck's sake. Yeah, so that kind of brought them back in line. Um, or, uh, you know, in line to, to his eyes, effectively. Um, so, yeah, he was, again, very, very harsh. Um, also, at this time, smallpox vaccines were being administered, and Malone tended to downplay the distress his men were in as they were put out of action due to swollen arms and inflamed lymph nodes and, and that kind of stuff, which is, you know, very typical of when you get, you know, vaccines and, and that kind of stuff. Um, but I feel like we should say very important, um, you know, that it needed to be done. Uh, <laughs> I can't think of any other time in which vaccines would need to be done. Can you? We would, we, yeah, I mean, like, I don't know why anyone would think vaccines don't work or, you know, didn't think that they were important. You know, I still so, don't understand that why people don't think they're important. Exactly. So yeah, so he was, but he was downplaying specifically, basically. Well, he basically was saying that his men were a bunch of wusses um, because um, you know they were they were kind of whinging about the fact that they had swollen arms and you know um, their lymph nodes, um, which is kind of uh, based around like your armpits and stuff. You know, were quite inflamed and that kind of thing. That is, until he had to, you know, it was his turn to get the vaccine, um, which the battalion historian said, quote, the doctor then saw that he received that application of the vaccine to which his rank entitled him, end quote. After this, Malone went on light duties and didn't mention the matter again. So, <laughs> um, clearly, uh, he was, you know, that he, once he got a taste of it himself, he was like, actually, you might be right there. Um, you know what? It's pretty shit. <laughs> so, um, so he's a bit of a hypocrite, our old Malone. Uh, which is, yeah, unsurprising. Uh, <laughs> oh. But kind of uh, saying all this, it wasn't all hard graft, though. Uh, trains called Bill Massey's Tourists, or sorry, trains carried... Bill Massey's tourists, Bill Massey being the Prime Minister at the time, um, to central Cairo and other local areas for a variety of interesting activities. Man, that would just be interesting to read, like, a book on... I mean, I know there are books particularly on interwar tourism in World War II, but mm. where, do, where do you find that information, if you don't mind me asking? Because that's interesting to me. If I'm honest, this was found in the, the Malone book. Um, I didn't oh, okay. look too deep into this. Um, as again, just something that I thought was not super relevant, but kind of interesting. Um, so they were going to things like clubs and pubs, brothels um, as well, of course, Shocking. as you do. Um, and for those who are more like present company, uh, they were also going to things like pyramids, tombs, mosques, uh, ancient Coptic churches um, and museums, which are also okay, all available. That would, yeah. yeah, I'd be on the latter half. <laughs> That's what I was like. I was like, oh, yeah, that'd be awesome. You know, like, you know, like go like do some training and then like go to a museum, go see some like pyramids and stuff. Like that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. And I must say what kind of sucks is knowing a lot of these guys would die in the war, but at least they got to yeah. go out like having seen the pyramids, right? Like that kind yeah. of shit. Absolutely. Yeah. So it was pretty, yeah. Like it was a pretty good time by the sound of it. Um, for Malone's part, he tended to prefer more cultural pursuits um, by that I mean he went to a few masses in kind of interesting locations, um, such as an Italian church um, and another at Heliopolis, 
um, which Are is you kind shitting of me? Neat. I mean, it's interesting, but it's kind of like really you couldn't appreciate the architecture. Yeah, I mean, he still got praise Jesus. Um, you know, so I guess I know. I guess it's kind of like a thing, right? Like you know, it's something that you do normally, but now you're doing it. You know, you, you're going to have mass with the Pope at the Vatican. You know, like it's a. I guess it's just like an interesting thing. Um, I don't know. I yeah, but yeah, no, he went to he went to mass, so good on him. Um, and of course, you know, as as he do, as he does, um, he commented on how everyone was brown, and even though there were Italians, French, Maltese, and Egyptians, um, how he found that weird. Um, you know that there was all these different types of people, which um. I really think gives off a small town New Zealand vibe um, of a guy who's lived his like most of his life in, you know, like really small town New Zealand. And suddenly like he lives in like, you know, Gore and then he goes to like Auckland and he's like, holy shit. I didn't realize like all these people could be like different skin tones and have different cultural practices and wear different clothing. And, you know, like he's just, yeah, really given off this, like I've never left, you know, this, like place that basically has three houses and a dairy, you know? <laughs> so yeah. And on the 18th of December, uh, Egypt was declared a British protectorate and a new regime put in place under a new Sultan that was more inclined to British interests. Shocking. Um, oh, shocking. Again, there is a whole story there, but it's not super relevant. So we're going to skip over it. Um, <laughs> we have to cut content somewhere. <laughs> Oh. Oh. <laughs> I realize all this stuff is really interesting, but there's literally 36 pages of notes already on just Gallipoli. Obviously, what we're saying here, li- dear listener, is that if Kira were in control of this, it would be 50 pages. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like that's a whole thing in and of itself that, like, I've reduced to one sentence, just the important, this happened. I think my favorite thing was last episode when you reduced Churchill to one sentence. So one it's, sentence. It's, it's, it's the only time we're going to, we're going to mention him, I think. Uh, oh, it's like no, a maybe cameo. Sorry. No, I do mention him actually once here. Um, and probably in this episode, we'll mention him the once. The elusive Churchill. Yeah. Um, so five days after the 18th, uh, the Kiwi, Aussie, and British troops marched through Cairo to showcase imperial power to really get the point across. Um, the Egyptians watching, big apparently. Big energy. Or big, yeah, big nationalism. Big dick energy. You energy. know, we're in control now. Don't try and fuck with us. Um, and apparently the Egyptians watching were, like, dead silent, um, which is probably to be expected. You've just seen a military power take over your country um, and is now basically flaunting the fact that they were able to do it. Oh, they're Ooh. not excited about imperialism? Funnily enough, the British no. assured us at the time everybody was just really grateful. But yeah, uh, interestingly <laughs> enough, they were not all on board. Um, you know. Huh. I huh. wonder why. It's almost yeah. like they understood they would be exploited. Or exactly. were being exploited. So, yeah, so that happened. Um, And in late December, early January, as part of a regular 2,000 strong uh, reinforcement, um, was the 500-man Māori contingent arrived. Um, And although Godley and Birdwood were impressed with um, how they conducted themselves and how they looked and that kind of stuff, uh, Malone was um, 
a bit more critical, shall we say. Quote, mostly big, hulking, gone-in-the-knees walking men. They look soft and, I fancy, were not killed with work on the transports. End quote. So he was um, not very impressed with how they looked. Um, keeping in mind as well that um, although these men probably had not experienced um potential they potentially had not experienced direct combat themselves maori of course for effectively a hundred years at this point more than a hundred years almost um had been fighting almost consistently with the crown um you know the maori in general at this time was not unfamiliar to warfare um and, you know and fighting pakiha white people in particular um you know and so they were you know, Māori were very keen to prove that they could pull their weight and that kind of stuff and kind of prove themselves, as we mentioned last time as well. Um, so, you know, although Malone was not impressed, these guys were probably more than capable of, um, you know, of doing some real damage. Um, and although the, the Māori soldiers were keen to fight shoulder to shoulder with Pākehā, they were told that they were being sent to garrison Malta. Um, along with 200 venereal disease patients, uh, which was running rampant through the army as well. So they were kind of relegated to garrison duty at this point um, for the foreseeable future. Um, we will see them again. They will come back. Um, and there are Māori soldiers that were part of the, you know, the Wellington Battalion and that kind of stuff as well. Um, but, you know, for, for these guys at the moment, they're kind of just relegated to garrison duty um, for the time being, but they will play what a fairly Malone was there. Like, Jesus Christ, you would think you'd be happy for any additional support you would have, like, from a yep. practical logistics standpoint, right? Like, yeah, exactly. And it, it, it all comes back to that kind of white man's war thing that we talked about last time. It's, uh, the, yeah, Māori were just not seen as being on the same level as Pākehā. Again, despite the fact that they had much more hardship than Pākehā at the time and had been fighting for their very survival for more than 100 years at this point. So, you know, it's, um, yeah, real kind of ass backwards in a way. Um, so, yeah. So the new year brought new news, which is a really weird sentence that I wrote, um, but, um, with the New Zealand High Commissioner uh, telling Malone and other senior officers that the New Zealand division would be sent to France in February or May, or sorry, February or March, assuming the Ottomans hadn't attacked by that point. Um, as usual, kind of Malone wished the Ottomans would have a go at them, uh, saying, quote, it would be the best training and would do us a world of good, end quote. She's like, wow, okay, bro. Manifesting um, destruction. Okay. Yeah, weird thing to to be like, oh hey man, we just want to get let's some get an let's, ass whipping. Let's yeah, just, we... let's just have some training by like shooting some some guys, you know, like that'll be good. Like, okay, man, I guess. I mean, I, I can kind of see his point. Um, you know, it, it I guess the, the Ottomans were not seen as a viable threat at the time. Um, you know, he he probably would have thought that they could be, be beaten quite handily. Um, and as such, you know, getting a bit of a active combat that was probably not terribly uh, risky was probably going to be good for their 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 training and, and that kind of stuff. Um, so I can see Actually, kind of where it's coming from. They didn't outlast the Russian Empire or anything or several other empires of note, yep. one might add. Uh, definitely pushovers. If we've learned anything from history. 
god, ridiculous. But yeah, no, I see yeah. it. Like, I, you want the blooded kind of before you get into any real shit. I, I get that, but at the same time, it's kind of like wishing uh, the Germans would attack you on the sit. Like, it, maybe you're not ready yet quite for this. So, yeah. Yeah. So I. I... I get where he's coming from. I don't know if I agree with it. Um, you know, it's it's a weird thing to want to be like, yeah, we should get attacked so we can kill some guys and maybe die ourselves. You know, it's a it's a weird thing to want. Um, but yeah, I can kind of see um, what his kind of thing, you know, his thinking was there. Um, before this, though, they would attack a Turkish army um, that was believed to be on its way to invade Egypt and take sewers. So he would actually kind of get his wish a little bit. Um, the New Zealand division, or the way this, that this would work was that the New Zealand division would uh, attack positions and cut communications so as to make further invasion impossible. And two days after this briefing was given, the division was ordered to move to Suez to meet a 25,000 strong Turkish army that was crossing the Sinai Desert. Um, the British commanders assumed the army's objective was to capture the canal and support an Egyptian nationalist uprising. Um, again, because they had just been kind of pushed under the, the rug, effectively. And the Wellingtons for themselves were ordered to help reinforce some Indian troops at a potential crossing point of the canal. Um, whereas the Auckland and Canterbury battalions would reinforce a second potential crossing. Um, and apparently the New Zealand division was pretty keen on this. Um, and they were excited to actually see some proper action. So they were they were feeling pretty good about it. Yeah, I mean, I uh, feel like there's only so much training and prep work you can do. Mm. Like, I mean, at this point, they've done a lot of it, right? Like, yeah. again, I see kind of that perspective, but I'm kind of like, mm, Yeah, it's know. a weird thing. It's a weird thing to want. Um, so the, in the end, the Auckland and Canterbury battalions actually saw the most action uh, during this engagement. Um, with the Turks trying to cross at the point that they were um, that they were holding, um, and they actually tried to do it in aluminium rafts, um, and only one of those rafts made it across. The others were destroyed by gunfire. Um, Two hundred Turks were killed and seven hundred were captured, um, with British and Dominion casualties uh, somewhere around a hundred. Um, so this is the other thing I think we, we should uh, stress a little bit as well, is we're going to talk a lot about casualties and kind of deaths and injuries and that kind of stuff. And for some people, they may not know the difference between that. Obviously, deaths and injuries, that's fairly self-explanatory. Um, but when I talk about casualties, and we're going to talk about casualties a lot, that is both deaths and injuries put together. A casualty is effectively when someone is put out of action, they can no longer fight, even if that means because you're dead, so obviously you can't fight, or whether that means because, you know, your, your leg got blown off or, or something like that, you're no longer able to fight, you become a casualty. So just for anyone who needs that clarification. Um, so that was a pretty, in terms of the, the, the Allied side, the British side, that was a pretty good engagement. They won that quite handily. Um, the Wellingtons only saw a very minor assault against them, um, probably more of a show of force as the main crossing was underway, and they only saw the odd sniper fire um, in the days after the assault. So it was they, they were probably more the distraction kind of bit as opposed to the main crossing. Um, and Malone actually wanted the Turks to try again so that he and his men could flank them and, quote, scupper them with the bayonet, end quote. So, of yeah. course they did. 
Of course he did. Exactly. What a little sadist. Yeah. And he actually even pressed on his superior to go on the offensive, saying that he didn't want the Turks to concentrate their forces. Um, however, aerial reconnaissance confirmed that the Turkish army was deep in the desert and in full retreat. Um, so that was that. There wasn't really any point in doing that. Um, the only New Zealand death during this whole engagement was Private William Ham, who died of his wounds on the seventh of February. Um, but kind of despite this great success and that the the Ottoman army was apparently in full retreat, Malone made sure his men uh, were or remained vigilant. Um, he was still a bit iffy on whether they were going to come back or not. So, yeah. Um, a little time after this, a Gurkha regiment uh, successfully conducted a raid um, by landing near Tor in the Red Sea. Um, Tor being uh, a city, um, well, near the Red Sea. And they marched 16 kilometers at night and attacked at dawn, killing 60 and capturing 100. Um, what was interesting about this was that the Kiwis noted how varied the soldiers were from 14 to 60 years of age with outdated weapons and equipment, or in some cases, no weapons at all. Um, this was on the, the Ottoman side, um, not the not the Gurkha side. The Gurkhas were obviously very well armed. Um, and this is something that, um, you know, th this image of an easily repulsed, ill-equipped enemy would be repeated a few times going forward in Gallipoli. This was something that, uh, again, it's a theme that we're going to see come up again and again, is that the Ottomans are frequently seen as being, yeah, you know, ill-equipped, low morale, um, you know, it, it'd be easy to take their positions and overrun them and that kind of stuff. And spoilers, but it ends up being very, very false. Um <laughs> And it, it, it does give the Kiwis and the Aussies a very initial false impression of what they're going up, going to go up against um, very, very soon. Um, and at the end of February, the New Zealand Infantry Brigade uh, returned to their main camp for more training. So they were taken off sewers and, and headed back. Um, so something that I don't know if I've got in my notes to talk about is um, the kind of structure of this 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 army. Um I think actually, no, I'll talk about that in a minute. Ignore that. I'll talk about that in a minute because something very crucial is about to happen. Um, so, yeah, 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 exactly. So Malone also confessed in his letters to Ida that he was finding their separation hard to bear and that he would devour her letters when they came and would reread them often. Oh, um, no. Yeah. I heard devour and then I thought, yeah, I no, thought sorry, we no, were going to... Different way. No, sorry, devour that. as in he would, he would, you know, he would quickly read them. He Anybody also, to clarify? No cannibalism here. No, no cannibalism. No, he didn't just eat the paper. Um, he also kept the lilac she had given him just before he left in a little pot with some roses, uh, telling her the bees kept coming to visit it. Um, God damn it! We can't like him. Stop! No. I know. I can't this help is, myself. I can't help myself. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Right yeah, now, I'm on a like. I'm on a like high. Yeah, so he does this quite a lot, actually. He he talks. He tells Ida about the different flowers he's found, and um, he puts them in pots, and he sometimes sends them back to her, and she sometimes sends him flowers, and yeah. So it's oh, it's hard, man. God damn it! So to Malone's We're not delight, we're supposed he... to like him. <laughs> to Malone's <laughs> 
fight, he had received a letter from Ida saying she would be going to England to look after any family injured in the war. So they'd be able to meet up since the New Zealand division was expected to go there before deployment on the Western Front. So he was pretty keen for that. Um, for anyone concerned that Ida's about to get sniped by a submarine on the way, that doesn't happen. She does make it to England. So oh, there's that. So there's I'll put that. that. That's good. I'll, I'll nip that one in the bud right now. She makes it. To <laughs> Spoiler alert: she Don't doesn't worry. get shot. Um, and so this is when things start really, like shit starts getting real, because plans were being cooked up for the Kiwis and Aussies. Um, and as such, it was determined that the Kiwi force wouldn't be able to make up a whole division or a proper division and enough that would actually work in the spectrum of what a division was meant to do. A division, of course, being a military unit that was made up of battalions. And so sometime in early 1915, some Australian troops were attached to the New Zealand Expeditionary Force and renamed the Australian New Zealand Army Corps which would later be much more well-known by its acronym, ANZAC. So this would end yep. up forming half of the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force, which was commanded by General Sir Ian Hamilton, who we mentioned last time. Well, I did say note that down because he's going to come back up. So here he is. He's come back up. He's going to keep coming back up again. Um, so this is where we get the word ANZAC is from Australia, New Zealand Army Corps um, for this formation. Um, so, of course, we have ANZAC Day now, which kind of is the Remembrance Day for the um, the Gallipoli landings and the Gallipoli. Well, Spoiler the alert, it's not good if it has it's a not Memorial good. Day. No, it's not, a, um, it's not like a, a celebration day that we have. It is more of a, a somber reality of war kind of day because it, Again, spoilers, but Gallipoli is really the first time when New Zealand goes, oh shit, uh, war's not super good. We're not really into Britain dragging us into our wars. Mm, not mm. super about that. Um, it's it's really the point where Australia... It's not and, worth the protection, yeah. Yeah, it's where Australia and New Zealand really um, kind of mature as nations. Um, is, is, this is one of like the turning points of where um, kind of, yeah, Australia and New Zealand really start becoming like nations in their own right um and so you hear you might hear a lot about um and today you might hear a lot about like the anzac spirit and and that kind of stuff you know it's it's stuff about like um you know australia and new zealand being quite tight-knit together um you know and that kind of stuff um so yeah so that's where we get anzac from so now from now on i'm mostly going to refer to the aussies and the kiwis as anzacs um, because that's kind of, although this wasn't a contemporary term at the time, um, it, it it is something obviously that we call them now. So yeah, so for case everyone, anyone's wondering if I keep calling them, you know, I will keep calling them Anzacs, if that's something that they were called at the time. Not really, um, but it, it makes it easier for, for us. Um, so yeah, so the Anzacs would be commanded by Birdwood. Um, again, note that one down, he's going to come up a lot more. Um, and two infantry divisions by former commandant of New Zealand of the New Zealand forces, Godley. So, so let's let's. I, I, I want to take a brief pause because all of these military units and stuff is going to be really confusing. I think for a lot of people. Um, so the 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 key thing that we've got here is the top level, 
is the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force. That is ma- that is the whole force that is going to go to Gallipoli, or the whole force that's going to go to to that peninsula. And that is made up of not just the Anzacs, but a bunch of British um, and Indian troops and, and, and various other dominions as well. Um, so again, that was commanded by Hamilton. The Anzacs, so the Anzac um, kind of division, uh, or the Anzac Corps, was commanded by Birdwood. And then below him was Godley, who was the commander of the New Zealand Expeditionary Force, who was a part of the Anzac Corps, or the, the Anzacs. Um, and below that was another guy that we haven't met yet, um, who headed the New Zealand Infantry um, New Zealand Infantry Division Force. Why have I written F there? Brigade. It should be B. Please hold. Um, so below was another guy um, who we haven't met, who is uh, the commander of the New Zealand Infantry Brigade. And below that was Malone with um, the Wellington Battalion, as well as the Aucklands, the Canterburys, and the Otagos, um, who were the other um, infantry battalions. There was also the Mounted Brigade as well, who was made similarly of Wellingtons, uh, Aucklands, uh, Otagos, and Canterburys, but they were the um, Auckland Mounted Brigade rather than the Auckland Infantry Brigade. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, Infantry Battalion and the Mounted Battalion. So they're the kind of units that we're working with here. Um, so hopefully that doesn't get too confusing for people um, because we're going to talk about these a lot because um, they're the kind of the main general units that we're working with. Um, so yeah, so that hopefully clears that up a little bit. <laughs> so think, yeah. yeah. Hopefully, yeah. Does that make sense to you guys? Yeah. Great, because it took me a while to wrap my head around it, actually, personally. Um, it is very confusing. Um, at least I found it very confusing. Um, so, yeah. So, But you can think of it associated with, um, if it makes it easier, associating it with, um, you know, the people. So Hamilton is the the, the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force, and um, uh, Birdwood is the Anzacs. Godley is specifically the, the New Zealand part of the Anzacs. And then there's another guy who commands the the um the infantry part of the the New Zealand Anzacs and then there's Malone who does the Wellingtons. So yep. cool. So of course I mentioned before that plans were being cooked up um for what the Anzacs and the rest of the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force was going to do. Um that plan um was uh, or on the on sixth of March, rumors had already begun to swirl among the ranks as they had been told they would be shipped somewhere unknown between the fifteenth and twenty second of March. Again, this is nineteen fifteen. Malone recorded in his diary, "Quote: Rumor has it we will all go to Cyprus and then join other troops in readiness to land in Turkey or Greece, take Constantinople, settle the Turks, then go up to Austria through Serbia, Vienna, and then on to Germany." That's ambitious. That is ambitious. The other thing I should probably mention here as well is in a lot of correspondence and um, in books and stuff as well, you hear um, you hear references to the Ottoman Empire as being called Turkey. Um, I have not done that here because that's not what it was called at the time. It was called the Ottoman Empire. The other thing a lot you hear, you would have just heard me say in that quote, is Constantinople. Um, 
you you hear uh, some some people call it Constantinople. Again, this is not what it was called by the people who were in Constantinople. It was and still is called Istanbul. Istanbul. Yeah. So I have done that because that's who the people were who lived there. That's what they called it. Um, but of course, you know, Western people still probably hadn't gotten over the fact that it got conquered by the right. Ottomans a few hundred years prior. So they were still calling it Constantinople. Um, still salty. Yeah. They're still a bit salty about that. Yeah. So. Yeah, but I will call it Istanbul because that's what people called it who lived there. Um, and it's still Istanbul for the record, and it, listener. Yeah, and it's still Istanbul today. Um, so the interesting thing about that kind of analysis from Malone is that he was very nearly on the money, as that was basically the plan that was being pushed by the first Lord of the Admiralty of Great So he Britain. wasn't far off. He wasn't far off. That actually was the plan, um, pretty much, that they were going to... Well, I'll talk about it in a second. Um, but of course, <laughs> the first Lord of the Admiralty for Great Britain was none other than oh. Winston Churchill himself. That's the last time I'm ever going to mention Churchill in reference to this at all. Um, except maybe at the end when he gets a lot of shit um, for pushing a plan that was very, very bad. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, do we, have, do, we, do we have anything we want to say about Churchill or do we want to just leave it at that? But do you see Jessica's? Oh, listener, Jessica just oh she gets she gets what she would refer to as the piss quivers anytime Churchill is mentioned, and I can't I can't explain it. Um, I don't think to clarify it's not arousal. I want to clarify that. It's not arousal. Okay, okay, Thomas. What were we talking about? So what Churchill, who was about? what was Churchill's role at this point? Churchill's role was that he was the first Lord of the Admiralty of Great Britain. Um, which I have been recently led to believe um, that some people don't know what that means. Um, and basically, it means he's the he's the head of the the navy. Is the long and short of it. He's um, in, in charge of the seamen. What can I say? He's in charge of the seamen. Yeah, <laughs> he's in charge of all the British seamen. <laughs> so. We were talking about the, the this this plan that keep it together, guys. Come on, this is this is serious business. Um, we were talking about how he was pushing um, for this plan that was um, the Anzacs were going to be involved in. Um, so the idea was that they wanted to take Istanbul, which was the capital of the Ottoman Empire, and knock them out of the war. They thought if they captured Istanbul, uh, the Ottomans would be straight away just give up surrender and that would be the end of it there is zero reason to believe that that or evidence to believe that that would be the case um wishful thinking probably very wishful thinking but that is what they thought would happen so that's why they wanted to do it um additionally by obviously knocking out an entire country out of the war this would open supply lines to russia um who were allied with them or allied with the the the, the Allies side, um, you know, our side, the, the, the side that For Britain then, and New Zealand is on. Um, and this would add extra strategic opportunities and obviously opening supply lines is really good. And that was the thing is Russia, I believe at this time, was not doing super well on their end. Um, and that was a really big problem. So they kind of thought if they could send some supplies their way, that could potentially help them. I feel like they underestimated the problems that were going on in Russia. Hmm. Yes, that's a will, different podcast, Kara. <laughs> we will briefly mention that a little bit later. <laughs> on, I believe, as well. 
ladies and gentlemen, she gave me the biggest wink ever because we both got really excited. But that's not what we're talking about. Not relevant. <laughs> we have to cut content. <laughs> can't talk about the revolution. <laughs> yeah, obviously Russia was having its own issues at this point that didn't even involve the war. Um, so yeah, but that was that was the idea anyway. Um, the problem was that was that to take Istanbul, you kind of had to be able to get there, um, and this would mean um, that they needed to take control of a very very ancient strait. A strait by strait, I mean a body of water. Um, and to antiquity, this strait was known as the Hellespont, um, but it is now known as the Dardanelles in modern times. Um, however, Kiwis and Aussies will know the name, or the er they will know the area by the name of its southwestern peninsula, a word that was burned into the national consciousness of both countries, which is, of course, Gallipoli, um, which is, um, like Anzac, Gallipoli in New Zealand and Australia evokes certain kind of thoughts and emotions um, and that kind of stuff. Um so it, when I say it was burned into the national consciousness, it really is burned into the national consciousness. There are very few Kiwis that, if you mention Gallipoli or the Anzacs, would not be able to give you a basic rundown of what the, that is and why that's important, um, even if they don't know the nitty-gritty and that kind of stuff. Would so, it yeah. be fair to say, I guess, the only thing I can think of like in a comparative con like consciousness to would be like in, during World War II, D-Day? Like, yeah. I mean, obviously different results in this case, but in the sense that, like, for Americans, we think of D-Day, like, and we picture what was happening with, you know what I mean, the beaches. And yeah. there, I think even most basic people could be like, okay, well, there were landings on here, here, and here. Yeah. So, so it's kind of that same understanding for Gallipoli for both Australians and New Zealand. Pretty much, yeah. Most people will give you would be able to tell you that you know there was some landings at, at a beach and it was really bad and there was like lots of hills and stuff and then we had to evacuate and and all this stuff. So it was a whole you know they'd be able to tell you like a whole kind of very basic rundown of of what it is. Even more so now because since it's recently, well I say recently, it was six years ago now, um, was the centenary of the of the Gallipoli landings, um, and so there's been a big kind of push um, by uh, the government and stuff to really know, you know, get this information out there. So we mentioned last time that one of the things, one of the ways that I used to research this was the uh, was the uh, exhibit at um, Te Papa, which is our national museum. Um, and so yeah, so there's a lot of there's a lot more information out there. So even though I say they'd probably be able to give you a basic rundown, um, they, they might actually most people would probably be able to give you a bit more of a, um, a slightly more in depth than that potentially because. Um, because there is this kind of push from the government and you know various organizations to learn a bit more about it because it's you know it's been the centenary and and that kind of stuff so um so it really yeah Gallipoli and, and Anzacs and that kind of stuff is really big in the kind of national consciousness and national identity of um New Zealand as well as um Australia um and there actually had been earlier attempts to take uh the Dardanelles um by using warships um, by using them to basically smash the forts that stretched along it. Um, but unfortunately, this didn't, or unfortunately for the Allies, this didn't work. 
Um, instead, the MEF, the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force, uh, was sent in to capture the peninsula um, by land. And the plan was that the British forces would land at five beaches of Cape Hellas, which is a cape that is just south of um, Gallipoli itself, um, which, is on, which is on the southern tip of that peninsula. Um, French colonial forces would also make, attack, make an attack to act as a diversion on the other side of the strait, so the Asiatic side of the strait. Um, and whilst this was happening in the other two areas, the Anzacs would attack a would attack 20 kilometers north of Hellas at a place called Gabatepe or Kapatepe. Um, and their job would be to secure various key points that would stop the Ottomans from reinforcing Hellas. Um, and so basically, so the Anzacs were actually the, the supplementary attack to the main one, which was at Hellas. Um, I should actually um, try and... Sorry, I'm going to see if I can find a map. Um, if... Oh, no, that's... Uh, oh, we will have some animal content, actually. Uh, I do tell a slight <laughs> lie. Um... Okay, I don't have a map of the whole peninsula, um, but if you are interested in kind of where we're talking about and that kind of stuff, um, that is, that is um, you know, it's quite southern. Um, Hellas is south of um, where uh, they were going to land and that kind of stuff. Um, and so for this attack, only the New Zealand infantry would be utilised. Um, the mounted rifles would remain in Egypt. Or I should say that that's of the New Zealand group, the New Zealand contingents that were, that would be going, only the infantry would be going. Um, this, of course, meant that Malone and his Wellingtons would be among the first to land um, on the beaches of Gallipoli. Um, and defending the peninsula was 34,000 Ottomans, who were mostly Turkish, with some Arabians against the MEF's total of 75,000. So this potentially gave the Allied commanders a bit more confidence that they could really actually plausibly do this, is because they effectively doubled, um, there was effectively double of them um, compared to the Ottoman troops. Um, it would still not quite yet be their time, um, because the Anzacs remained in Egypt for all of March, um, Malone writing on the 24th that he felt in his element, and that should he survive the war, he was unlikely to return to the law profession. So he was, he was, a, he was you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, he was not, he was not coming out. And the rank and file themselves uh, were getting itchy for some real action, having grown sick of all the training that they had to do. Um, and the last kind of couple of bits of excitement were a final parade before General Sir Ian Hamilton, and a riot broke out over some women and the price of booze, resulting in much property damage by throwing furniture out of windows, looting, and fire engines being tipped over and their hoses cut. <laughs> that was... Yeah, wild time. Uh, the Egyptian police tried to disperse the crowd by throwing stones at them, but ended up firing their revolvers, which ended up wounding five men. Um, oh, no. Cavalry, aided by some Kiwi and Aussie units, managed to restore order. The Battle of Wazir, as it was dubbed, resulted in nearly 100 men from the Wellington Battalion being under arrest or in a guard tent. In a guard tent oh my god! Yeah. So much for discipline! Yeah. Yeah. That's out the window, Jesus. Yeah. So it's um yeah, it, the That's the ridiculous. Wellington Battalion was uh, fairly well presented presented in this battle. 
Um, the only thing Malone had to say on this in his diary was, quote, if they had burnt the quarter to the ground, it would have been a good thing, end quote. So... <sighs> I mean, I think he would have loved Carry Nation, I think. He would have really loved him to Carry Nation. <laughs> so yeah, he's um again professing that general racism and uh general disdain for anything fun, basically. <laughs> <laughs> like he would have been okay if it burned the brothel or burned anything entertaining and pleasing to the ground, basically. Exactly. So on the 7th of April, the MEF commanders now confirmed that they would be moving on. The next day, the rank-and-file men were warned of a big move as all leave was cancelled. So all, um, you know, if they wanted time off or anything to go do fun stuff, that was all cancelled. Malone that same day visited the graves of three of his men that had died from pneumonia during training, taking pictures of them and arranging them to be sent back to New Zealand. At dawn on the 10th of April, Malone led the Tananaki and Ruahine companies to Alexandria, where they embarked for where the force was gathering, which was the island of Lemnos. So, Thomas, now that we are on the cusp of Gallipoli, where can we find you if we want to hear about things New Zealand? Yeah, if you want to listen to me talk about New Zealand history, uh, not quite this far forward. Uh, We're still in the uh, pre-European Māori time period um you can find me uh, obviously anywhere you find podcasts if you found this one it's pretty easy it's the history of aotearoa new zealand podcast aotearoa spelled a-o-t-e-a-r-o-a um you can also find me on twitter history aotearoa you can find me on facebook history of aotearoa new zealand podcast you can find me on Patreon. instagram uh yeah yeah hang, I'm, I'm getting there uh, <laughs> <laughs> throw your uh, money at thomas we can, you can find me on Instagram, History of Aotearoa, New Zealand Podcast, and you can also find me on Patreon if you want to give me money, um, if that's your thing. Um, again, History of Aotearoa, New Zealand Podcast. Um, I think that's everywhere that I am. Um, but yeah, that's basically me. Um, we we talk a lot about, obviously, New Zealand history. It's very much it does what it says on the tin. Also, if you ever fly to New Zealand, you can listen to his podcast on Air New Zealand in the post-pandemic future. Yes, I was going to say, you can't do that right now. Uh, I said in the post-pandemic future. Yes, we're not letting people in uh, just right now. I mean, you can go there, but then you're in quarantine perpetually. Uh, Well, you can go, you can come here and there's, um, you have to be in quarantine for two weeks. Uh, You have to pay for it yourself though. Um, And you also have to- Similar situation in the UK, I think right now. Yeah, so th- there is a possibility that you can come in, but um, the government won't really let you in if it's just like, I'm just having a holiday. Um, you can't really do that. It has to be like a legitimate reason. And then you have to book your managed isolation as well. And they're pretty well full up at the moment with people coming back from overseas with legitimate reasons for trying to get into New Zealand. Because, um, you know, they're Kiwis that have been overseas and now they're coming back because they've lost their job or whatever. So um so yeah it is yeah so don't don't try and fly to new zealand right now uh we won't let you in <laughs> we are close. but but in the future when things are normal yes. again you can listen to thomas on an airplane on a plane yes on international flights of air new zealand i am i am on there as well don't know how Thank i managed you. to finagle that one but i did <laughs> it wasn't part of his like he didn't send a brochure to like air new zealand and was like feature me 
yeah, no, I just sent an email and they just said, oh, yeah, that sounds all right. I was like, sweet. <laughs> so, I don't know. People keep being like, oh, my God, that's amazing. And I'm like, I just sent an email, had like a 15-minute conversation with a man on the phone, and then that was it. Like, it wasn't much to it. <laughs> so you could do it too. You dear listener out there with a with a podcast, maybe you should reach out reach out to your local airline and ask them, can you put my podcast on a, on your flights, please? But please do not mention me because I don't want a bunch of people being like, I heard this on a podcast about this guy and he told me you could do it. And there's just like this large influx of people like emailing like airlines being like, can you put me on? <laughs> Yeah, let's rescind that plug. It was actually very difficult. Thomas had to jump through so many hoops, if you will. Extremely difficult. Don't even try. Literally skateboard through New Zealand Parliament. (laughs) Yeah, I had to get Jacinda to sign off. It was a very, it was was a whole whole thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He had to do a song and a dance dressed as whatever the New Zealand version of Guy Fox would be. Uh, it was uncomfortable, celebrate. but he got there. <laughs> Actually, we, so, we're thinking of getting rid of it, I think. The old Guy Fawkes. Um, we're not as into it. so You know, I wonder why. Why? It's, it's, it's totally <laughs> fucking irrelevant to anything to do with New Zealand. Oh, oh yeah, that's right. That's right. That's what that is. That's, that's right. Yeah. I remember now. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's how that goes. Um, Kara. You also have a few things to plug as well, if you would. Just in your own time, eh? Do do you want me to go first and then you give it a try? Or (laughs) I just I just I just choked. Um you can oh, find me on Twitter. <laughs> I thought you were giving me devil eyes for what reason I didn't know. I apologize. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Don't apologize because I kind of was, but I wasn't intending him necessarily. I was just like, <laughs> oh no, I have to plug myself again. So <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Cara Demuzio. You can find me on Instagram at Cara.Demuzio. Uh, you can find Time Travel Talks, which is a fun history community in which you can talk to people from all around the world with all varying levels of history about history. And guess what? We have history huddles. We have questions. We have a Discord server. Message me if you're interested and want to participate in any such events, and I would be happy to let you know about what it is we do. And Jessica, where can we find you in oh the podcast? It's almost like you do that once a week. That was just, oh, how you ran or technically, it. it was so three good. times this week, I think. Three times this week. That's exactly right. Hey, yo. <laughs> I was watching Carson reruns yesterday while I was sick, so that's funny to me for so many reasons. Um, guys, you can find, follow the podcast at Body Count Pod, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You guys know where to find us, bodycounthistorypod.com. Again, we're revamping that. We're also revamping our Patreon, and that's going to be patreon.com backslash bodycount. I think we're hitting all the highlights there. That being said, you can find me at Jessica B. Manor on Twitter and Instagram. I basically haunt 
Kara's Twitter and I don't Instagram a great deal, but I will engage with you if you have a question or or you have something that maybe you want to cover. Which does bring us to housekeeping, doesn't it? So if you enjoy your indie history podcast, by all means, please rate and review Thomas's show, Body Count Pod, any show that you enjoy listening to on Apple Podcasts. Um, If you don't use Apple Podcasts, feel free to share your favorite episode on Twitter or social media. That's an easy and free way at supporting podcasts you enjoy. And um, I think I can speak for everybody in in that it's nice to hear feedback because I think sometimes recording, you can feel a little bit lonely and disengaged from the audience by the time the product comes out. So that being said, it's an easy way. Just tweet at us. Um, engage, share an episode, like and review, rate five stars. Tell us what you liked. Tell us what you enjoyed and tell what us, you want to hear more tell of. Tell us something you learned. That's something I really like is when people tweet at me and go, I learned this new thing from your podcast. That's something I really enjoy. Um, mm-hmm. So if you learned something, uh, flick us a tweet or even like an email or whatever. Said, hey, man, I didn't know what this was before, but I went to work the next day and told everyone because I thought it was cool. So that's always nice. That's true. That's I learned hashtag I learned this on a podcast. Well, you know, I do that with Thomas's tweets anyway. I run around to everybody I know and I'm like, look at this thing that I've learned. (laughs) (laughs) Whether it be about, you know, New Zealand or bats, it doesn't really matter. I just shove it in everybody's faces. Um, So that's a lot of fun. Everybody thanks you for that, Thomas. That being said, Kara's exactly right. We live in this giant echo chamber. And as much as I love the sound of my own voice, it does get tedious. We love to hear from you guys in any way that you feel like you want to reach out, you want to engage with either one of the shows. It's something that we really, really enjoy. And we love hearing from everyone. So that being said, have I covered all the bases? I believe so. So we are going to have to, there's going to be at least, I feel like, and maybe it's my spidey senses, two parts coming on because you have to have the lovely, obviously. But then you have to have the aftermath and how it actually changes and I feel like steers course. Um, Yeah. So next time we'll talk about, we'll spend a bit of time on the landings. The landings are obviously really important. Um, And then we get into kind of what happens when everything kind of calms down a bit after the landings. And then, uh, yeah, and then uh, what happens kind of at the climax. And then uh, what happens kind of after um, everything kind of goes tits up um, and uh kind of what happens after Gallipoli what happens to the various people that we kind of are gonna we have been talking about a bit and we are going to talk about more um kind of what happens to them after the war um and very yeah does that survive plus we have (laughs) a birth of national identity to throw in there kind of somewhere in there too so (laughs) there's a lot there's a lot it's a lot i think minimum two more episodes um Maybe three, depends on how how well we do. (laughs) Well, yeah, and I feel like the attention span of the listener, too, because I feel like sometimes it's easier to listen to a story separated a little bit, too. So there's that. But, um, yep, I think that'll wrap it for us, and we look forward to talking to you again. But thank you for listening and presenting to us this very story. I appreciate it.
Thank yes, you very much for having me. we appreciate it, and we appreciate the tremendous amount. And again, listeners, yeah. I cannot overstate. We accidentally saddled him with like a giant project because the pitch started out like, "Hey, Thomas, you want to talk about Gallipoli?" And he's like, Ooh. "Oh man, that's a lot. That's a lot." And then he was like, "Let's just let's just talk about this dude." And then he's like, "Wait, you can't just talk about the guy." It's hard. Yeah, it's hard to. I mean, as I said, I've cut a lot already um, because I've, I've also, we're showing it through his lens. There's a lot, you know, we can talk about through other people's experiences, um, other battalions that that have a, a, a very different experience to Malone. Um, it's just that Malone tends to be the most famous guy um, from Gallip- or one of the more famous guys from Gallipoli. So, um, so a yeah, unique, I'm getting a bit overboard, but it's fine. A unique figure you have brought yes. us indeed, sir. Yeah. We have gone back and forth a lot, and I think by the end of this, we'll we'll have bounced back and forth probably yeah. ten more yeah, times. More. So, yeah, it's excellent. We appreciate the amount of work, and of everybody knows how well you do what you do. So that's going to wrap it up for us this week. We will be back at you more, or with more, and a whole lot more next week. We appreciate you guys. Thank you.